Terry Alderton. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Let's go. So if you're a little boy or a young man and you're dreaming maybe of a job that you would like to do when you're grown up, you might think footballer or TV star or fireman or soldier or let's throw in radio DJ, maybe performing for the Queen. You've kind of pretty much either done all of these things or somehow been involved in. I hadn't thought about that until you just said, actually. Yeah, I suppose, because I moan a lot. And really, when you lay out like that and I start thinking about all the things I've done, it's not been too bad, has it, really? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. You're about to do a, a stand-up tour. We'll talk mm. about that in a bit. Mm. But let's talk about the football thing first of all. So when you left school, you were playing for your team. For well, yeah, I, I tell you what happened was Bobby Moore came to the school and uh, I said to him, I want to be a footballer. And he went, are you good? And I went, yeah, I'm good. He goes, because we don't have good. We don't have brilliant. Brilliant, son. That's all we have. So I said, okay, fair enough. I'm brilliant. So they scouted me anyway on the Sunday, which was quite weird for South End. And then I, because I played for my districts and what have you, if you know about football and that kind of thing. So, um, cut a very long story short, I played for them, went to reserve level, you know, uh, what was it called then? The apprenticeships, what the YTS. And uh, very, very long story, cut very short. We were playing a game and I made a great save. And there were in the days of you could only have like six steps as a goalkeeper. So I did the Michael Jackson moonwalk. Right, because I was so excited with the save that I've made, right? And then the referee blew for indirect free kick from which they scored. They won 1-0 and then I was sacked about three weeks later. But it was because I was rubbish, basically. So you moved to London. I moved in nearish. More, I'm still in Essex. And then you started doing comedy. You did your first open spot when you were 18, right? 18, yeah. And I did it at the Joker Comedy Club, which is still running in South End. And the lineup was incredible then. Bill Bailey was on, but he was part of the Rubber Bishops then. Lee Evans was comparing. Patrick Melba was on as well. Patrick Melba was famous for writing Alan Partridge and what have you. Did that. And the guy who was running the club, Colin Dent, said, look, why don't you uh, go on this new TV station that's starting called Sky, right? And they're doing a talent show. Go on there. And uh, at 18, I went on one, won it. I won the whole thing. Sky Star Search winner, first ever. And you're up against... Chesney Hawks. So you In the semi-final, I beat him. <laughs> beat him. I said, hey, get down, get out of my face. So he was singing and you were yeah. doing stand-up. He was living on his dad being in the tremolos and all that. Yeah, so he's he's uh, he's dancing the tremolos and here he is singing now. I was thinking my dad was a plumber. I was awful on Sky Star so Were you? I should put it on YouTube, really, because it's so bad. But you, you won't believe my hair and everything. And, and the way I talk on it is hilarious. In what way awful? Because I'm supposed to be an impressionist and I don't sound like anybody, right? And I've got this really long Mick Hucknall kind of hair. Seriously. And I told her, I don't know, I told her, I don't know, I'm sorry, I told her, I can't understand what I'm saying. Because that's a quick, you don't even know, I watch it and go, what you want about me? It's really weird because I look back on me then and I really don't like him. I think he's an idiot. <laughs> Isn't that terrible to say that about yourself? Yeah. But then you've got a lot to thank him for in that that kind yeah. of launched you off in this direction. So yeah. what happened after that? Well, I worked on a holiday camp. But did you think, oh, you know, this is it, I'm going to be massively famous? Or did you think, well, comedy, you know, this is a thing I could do for a job? Mm, well, I've always... Ever since I saw fame, I thought, I want to be famous. I think that's the problem with it years ago. I think, if I'm honest, I did want to be famous. I think, well, I want to be successful, really. That's a massive difference in today's pop celebrity that we live in. 
it's even more important to me. You know, there's things I could have done. I could have gone in that jungle, the first series, but, you know, I didn't want to do any of this. I don't want to be seen as a celebrity because then you put me in the same league as Jordan and people like that. No disrespect, but that's not where I want to be. And, you know, I just want to be a comic and act as well. I like doing the acting. Well, we'll come on to the acting. Okay. So you worked at a holiday camp doing... You were an entertainer. You weren't like a red coat. No, I was, it was kind of a... Yeah, it was, it was exactly that, an entertainer. White dinner jacket, red bow tie. Wanted to be a little bit different. Um, awful. Dying on my backside every night in there. Really? Oh, every night. I mean, I was doing stuff, you know, and, and the, these were old biddies, and they were just looking at me. They wanted Frank Spencer. So I started doing Frank Spencer, but Frank Spencer, you know, starting World War Three or something, and they just be going, what is he on about? Got to push that button. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's really hard to explain, but because I've had so many changes, I'm like the Doctor Who of my own self, if that makes sense. I've kind of reborn and relived again. I think back then in those days, it was still too much for those people, but a lot more mainstream than what I am now. But it must have been a good education to just oh, have huge. to stand up. Of course, to keep dying, you don't want to keep dying, do you? You know, this business, it's a cliche, but you always read about anyone who's successful. The amount of times you give up, you know yourself, you're going to give up. Right, I'm giving up, I'm doing it anymore. I must have given up 55,000 times. I mean, that's a ridiculous amount. I couldn't even live that long, but I keep giving up all the time. That's it. And then, then someone said to me, "You, it's not about how many times you get knocked down, it's about how many times you get up and all these terrible cliches come out and you're just like, just give me a break. <laughs> that was in Great Yarmouth. Then. That was in Great Yarmouth, yeah. And then I started doing comedy in London, which when I started was the alternative circuit, of course. But the problem I had was I was neither mainstream and I was neither alternative. I was kind of like the mixed comedy, if that makes sense. So I was getting it from both sides, you know, from the mainstream side, he's alternative, you know, don't understand him. And the alternative side, we're going, he's too mainstream, he's too mainstream. But if I'm honest, I think I opened up some doors there, you know, the likes of Lee Mack, even Lee turned around to me when I got Perry nominated 10 years ago. I remember him coming up to me saying, I'm glad this has happened because you've done stuff for acts like us, which are more not surreal and a little bit more easy, easy to understand, I suppose. Somewhere in between the two. Somewhere in between the two, yeah. Well, it's original, but it's you know, like McIntyre, I suppose. He's done that, hasn't he, really? He's very good mainstream. It's not cutting edge, but it's very good. Well, listen, he's making a fortune, so he's doing something right. Good luck to him. You got nominated for the Perry. That was in 99. Yeah. How many times had you been up to Edinburgh? By then, I'd been up probably three times. But that was the first time I'd done a full show. And the good thing was as well, I went up there because I'd gone up with a bit of a buzz. And they were doing this other show called Edinburgh or Bust, it was called. And that sold my show out because that would run three, four weeks before Edinburgh had started. So I got up there, I had a, you know, it was full. And that's the only way to do Edinburgh full. You don't want to be playing to three people, really. So you got nominated that year. Mm-hmm. The people you were up against, like it was a It was a great, it, it was, it was me, Ross Noble, Al Murray, the Boosh. And Simon Munnerin, who's completely, is a milligan of our era, you know. He's not really that famous, Simon, but if you like your comedy a bit weird, you need to go and see Simon Munnerin. You have to go and see him. He's mental. He's great. I think something that's amazing about him is that he will storm a room, but he'll die as often as he storms it. Massively. And there's something entertaining about watching an audience with their mouths catching flies, because you watch some people just aren't getting what he's on about and it's equally as funny for him to be coming out with these great gags and then watching an audience just going I haven't got a clue what this guy's on about and looking at each other going why are these people laughing at him and it's just nice because that's what it took me a long time to realise myself that's what comedy's about it's obviously it's subjective same as music but with comedy you've just got to be truthful up there I mean I think people sniff a rat and that's what I did in the early days I kind of try to appease try to be Barrymore try to be you know mainstream Hey, well of course equally people are going to love or hate you I think if you do what you really believe in People will love and hate you, but the thing is, the people that do love you, I think they will start following you and get into you. And now, of course, what I'm doing is completely crazy, so... Yeah, it's completely changed. I want to come back to that. Going back to 99, you won the Perrier, and then you had a mental year. You did the Royal Variety Show. Um, Yeah, it's very interesting, really. It's crazy what happened to me. So I had 10 years of coming up and telly and all that, getting loads of TV, 
being all right, learning my craft, doing what I was doing, did the Royal Variety, did the lottery show, killed me. All killed me. Everything killed me. Hang on. So this is the lottery show that was with Lulu. Lulu. Which it was called Red Alert. We called it Red A Nightmare. It was me and Lulu. And then I, in fact, the thing is, I then hit a massive wall, became hugely depressed and went through what, as I call it, the dressing gown phases where I kept the dressing gown on. When they hit the twin towers, I, that was it. That flipped me. I boarded my house up and everything. My wife just married me. And there's me boarding up the house, masticking all the windows. Honestly, I went crazy. Honestly, really crazy. And I don't know if anyone's been depressed and it's not a nice place to be. It's brilliant if you come out the other side because you like Teflon, you know, like Batfink. But I remember when you're depressed, you always want to find something to kick you in the balls, right? And I remember one, one day getting on the tube and there was a Sun newspaper there and I opened it up. And on page two, it had the 10 worst TV shows of all time, and I'd hosted two of them, right? And then, I was really annoyed with the fact that they weren't one and two, though. I was really, that, That's how sad I'd become. And my wife said to me, you've got to go back and do stand-up. And I said, if I do that, then people will be going, look who's back. And she said, you think everyone's in dressing rooms talking about you. And then I suddenly realised that through even just being depressed, it actually is so self-obsessed that I've gone completely up my own backside and, you know, I had to pull my head out of it. And thus came the reinvention. When was that? This must have been about 2004, something like that. But before then, you'd done more telly. You'd done London's Burning. I'd done all that, all that stuff. I did London's Burning and I was supposed to be in the original series of, you know, when they did the, the Lockstocks. I was supposed to be in that, but because it was Ginger, they wouldn't let me do the two. So they let me have one partner, and Tony Wood then put me into London's Burning. Ginger did Productions. what? Did so the lottery show, and they did the Lockstock. The Lockstock, so they wouldn't let you do both. So instead no. you did so London's Burning. I played Burning. a guest, guest part in, in Lockstock. I played Eddie the Diamond, who's always like a bad man, but he ain't no bad man, get me, right? And then I was uh, Cheeky Charlie Mead in... Um, in London's burning, got a bit stupid. Yeah, got fish coming. I don't know what stuff I would have ordered to help me. It was rubbish, really. Was that soap star celebrity? Not really, not really. I mean, you know, like I say, from that, I got called in to do the Jungle Show, the first one. And basically, I sat in there and they're saying, you know, will you do this? And I just kind of threw it away. My agent at the time said, well, you threw that away. And I went, well, I don't want to do this. Not what I want to do. I don't even want to do London's burning. I want to do what Peter Sellers did, which now, in fact, now is starting to happen. You know, with I don't know if people know about the Danny Dyer thing, but that's it's kind of got a big cult following on YouTube. And now has become, uh, I've just done a pilot for the BBC for it. So. Hang on, wait, 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 let's go back. You want to go back? You want to go back to the comedy? Should we? Yeah. I know where you want to go back to the reinvention. Yeah. Okay. So 2004. So you... I'm sitting in my car, coming home from Manchester Comedy Store. It's a big room. I love the Manchester Comedy Store now because I know how to play it. But at the time when you're depressed, it's five rooms essentially, right? So you've got a de- two downstairs to your left and right, a little bit in front of you, and then two balconies. Now it sounds weird, but if you've been to the Comedy Store in Manchester, you'll know it's like playing five rooms. Okay. And I remember doing this whole crappy old drunk routine that I did, and I hit the floor. And I was laying on my face in front of 70 people and there was these two girls at the front and I just remember they were about 17, 18 and they were laughing at me. And I just remember one of them going, look at his shoes, right? And I had these boots on that I'd worn on the lottery show. These tired old, like Charlie Chaplin tramp boots. And I got in the car and I thought, yeah, look at my shoes. What is this? And I made a deal with myself. I thought I can just keep hacking this out. I'd come back four or five years and carried on with the same stuff. Not even topical, you know? And I decided there was a thing that I used to do in my act when I used to pretend to do this routine about being in New York and not being understood and being English. And then I went to the bar and the guy says to me, uh, what do you want? I said, I have a medium white wine. He said, we only do the one size, right? Ha ha, laugh, laugh. Then I'd turn off and go away. And with two voices, I'd go, you must show in the bulldog spirit. Like these, yes. what are we doing, right? And uh, it used to get big laughs. 
So I decided just one day to throw that in, turn my back on an audience, which is wrong, and then start talking to myself, you know, actually telling people my inner dialogue, my inner thoughts. Doing it in two in comedy, voices. Yeah, this is in the comedy club, right? And uh, Ben Norris, another great comic, he's lovely, Ben Norris, he just said to me, what was that you were doing there? And I went, oh, it was just something I was just trying out. And he went, it's great. He said, you've got to do that. He was like, you can see in someone's face and someone you respect, you think, oh, well, maybe there's something in this. He said, but don't be bitter with it. Don't slag people off with it. Make it just what it is. So I, I went with it and died with it and stormed it and died and died and died, but just knew I had to keep going. Just to explain it, yes. like, to someone who hasn't seen it, so you're okay, basically... Okay, so what I do is I talk to you as an audience, but what I also do is when I get a thought or anything or get heckled, I turn around, face my back to you, the audience, and I talk to two inner voices, two inner demons, whatever you want to call them. Some people go, is it Gollum? Is it Gollum? It's not really Gollum, but anyway, is it Gollum? And I talk to these two voices and they basically go me. And I'm completely honest with you here. When you get in a zone, and this sounds really like, oh yeah, arty farty, but I don't sometimes know what I'm saying. I honestly don't. Sometimes I come off and go, I don't know what I was on about. And some things I don't even know I knew. You know, you must do that in conversation when you start getting in a conversation about something you don't really know and you're talking away and getting yourself out of a hole and thinking, actually, I know quite a lot about this. I didn't even know that. That's what it's like. Do you ever shock yourself? Do you ever say stuff that you think, oh, Yeah, sometimes I do. But the truth of doing the voices is you've got to be honest with them. And sometimes people behind you don't like that. You're not facing them and there's nothing coming back behind. And what you have to keep in mind is as long as you're keeping it interesting, people are hopefully enjoying what you're saying. Because it's my mind. I'm just telling you honestly what's coming in my head. I'm actually... It's quite weird when I watch it back because it is like watching two different human beings talking to each other. Quite disturbing, actually. It is quite disturbing. It is. I've seen it a couple of times and it is a kind of genuinely really funny, but also it is quite scary. And I have seen you at one of the shows that you did at Edinburgh where you started talking about someone in the audience that you knew. And it was an agent who owed you money. Yeah. And I was sitting, going, he can't say that. Well, they're goading me. And, and that's what happens. And it just comes and they, you're rightly, I remember that night. And, you know, they tell me to sort it out there and then. And there he was standing on a balcony. I mean, in full view of everybody, well lit up. And then I just would turn around as me and go, uh, John, where's my money? But I, it's a, it's, I can't explain it, but it's kind of like I lead what they say. And they might, if I do something that's not terribly good, I'll have a discussion with those two. Or someone heckles me or whatever, you know. Do you think in the way that you were saying that Lee Mack had said you've paved the way for people who are that bit not quite mainstream and yeah, not... Yeah, it's um, a really nice thing to have said. Not, yeah. Or not quite alternative. But do you think that doing this kind of stuff is easier to do now? Like, one of the things that really struck me in Edinburgh was seeing a lot of acts and thinking, you're funny, and I don't mean to compare you to this, but just in terms of the sort of surrealness within comedy, there was just one sketch act that I saw who were really great and they were funny, but I thought, you know what, if the Mighty Boosh hadn't broken through, I don't think you'd have an act. And I think people are kind of more open to stuff that's yeah. a bit... Odd I think now. what's I think what's happening is certainly when I was a kid it was Milligan and uh, Benteen who never gets mentioned Michael Benteen and if you're too young to remember him YouTube him Michael Benteen's potty time crazy and actually listen to what he's saying as well because it's actually very political what he's saying it was a kids program there's a lot of there's a lot of politics in what he's saying as well and exactly what you're saying I think there was a, a whole niche for that crazy time there and I also think just I'll come forward in time but I think if you took show business then on two hands you'd have your Les Dawson's on one hand and your Russ Abbott's. And on the other hand, you'd have your Monty Python's and whatever, you know. But now we've got celebrities who can't do anything and then people who vaguely are known who can do stuff, right? I think what's happening now at this moment in time with comedy is we may be going back to that, which would be absolutely wonderful, that we do get that Milligan feeling back where people can just have review and get on stage and, and just say stuff you either come in or you don't come in and I think you're right and I think the Bush have got a lot to answer for for that I remember seeing Julian Barrett years ago and Julian did this great routine about a wind cheater 
and he was just doing the wind. He goes, you know what's like having a wind cheater on, the wind's pushing against it, it's pushing against it. He goes, I can't do it. I can't get through the weave. And I thought it was hilarious, because I like what he does. But it was a Camden Jongler's audience who just sat there going, get off, he's rubbish. And other comics going, what's he on about? I'm going, this is great. I mean, just get in there. And I think people actually can get in, then, then you're the winner. If you just want to stand back and go, I want a bloke walking into a pub, then that's fine. Go and see um, that big fat, whatever his name is, Geordie Geezer. Roy Chubby Brown? Yeah, I mean, if you want that, go and see it. But I think it's much better if people come and see you and then just suspend the real world, you know, and just let it run. And have you found a big difference in terms of the audiences from the stuff you did before and doing this I think now? there was a funny time. There was an interesting time. I sensed that a lot of people did. I think there was a real kind of trendy time for the old marching powder. Right, there was a real time about three years ago where all of a sudden, because I would go into the toilets and always run my hand across the top of the toilets just to see. So if my hand was pretty full, I knew what audience we had. Because it's not a thing to laugh at, I don't think. Um, I wouldn't know, of course. But, <laughs> you know, and that was a funny old time. And I know a lot of comics realised that we were talking about that at the time. And so how it numbed, it numbed the audience a little bit. It was a funny time about three, four years ago. It was quite strange. Now it's gone again now because I do the old test in the toilets. It's not around anymore. What you were saying about the kind of stuff that you're doing. I mean, I'd seen you years ago mm. when I first got into comedy and I really liked it. And then when I saw you again recently, it did feel like quite a different kettle of fish, but yeah, I yeah, loved yeah. it. But it was that thing where it's like, I loved it because it frightened me and that's always quite nice. Yeah. But also I think because it did feel like it was getting into you a bit more and people like stuff that's really I honest. Yeah, I, um, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I wanted to reinvent myself. And, and of course the mad thing is, here's the thing, now I'm better than I've ever been. And I've reinvented this kind of, I hope, more of an interesting comedy side to me. I can't, as we say in the business, get arrested now. It's quite mad. Like uh, the Apollos and all that kind of thing, these TV shows will stand up. They purely won't have me on because they won't have me turn around. They said if I drop that, they'll have me on, but I'm not going to drop it. I'm not, I mean, it's quite obvious, isn't it? You stick a camera, I would think, you turn a camera, so I turn onto the camera to talk to myself, to you at home, whilst you see everybody behind me talking to them and then I turn back to I think that'd be quite interesting as yeah. a producer but they say no 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 it's not conventional so alright fair enough I'll stay out on my own then I'm not that bothered by it but I'd love to do it of course I'd be insane to say I wouldn't want to do it but well, I'm not maybe dropping it we'll wait and see what happens with this tour you're in a film as well aren't you just on a film yeah called The Flirting Club it's alright I'll play a German in it it's not German man you know yeah. what's your character he's called Gunther and uh, it's basically these group of people they're all oddballs and they're in a club trying to find love and this guy stumbles across it of course he does and then we end up uh, you know all clubbing together and trying to find love and obviously I turn into a homosexual man because at the age of 35 Gunther didn't know he was gay <laughs> stupid but it was good fun playing it some people don't well maybe they don't but you know isn't it a shame that I think you do know it's just society keeps people which is a real shame but anyway that's another story when do we get to see that well it's supposed to be releasing at the end of the year but okay could go straight to DVD you don't know and it's called The Flirting Club Flirting Club yeah something else I want to ask you about you went out to Afghanistan yeah I did the troops I did Afghanistan and Iraq purely because I wanted to see it with my own eyes you always read about things in the papers and this and that and this what astonished me more was more astonishing is the fact that we the whole green thing in this country and how we're all recycling and trying not to drive our cars which is great and all this and get tubes and they talk about pollution and people need to go and have a look at Afghanistan I mean don't worry about people are dying there that's awful we all know that but honestly green people will be freaking why well it's constantly buzzing isn't it constantly everything's going the whole time you know generators there's no power it's just all these little 
engines all buzzing around everywhere. But I wanted to see it with my own eyes, and it was very interesting. It was very, very interesting, and it was interesting to play those kind of audiences because, believe it or not, they're the one audience because you really can go very... You can go the whole way with. Oh, what really? you think that Edinburgh crowd would be, but Edinburgh crowds are very conservative, I find. You're kind of looking going, is that right? Can you say that? It's like, well, yeah. I'm living by it and I'm going to die by it. Just go with it. But with military gigs and playing to lots of Americans as well, which that's a load of rubbish when people say that we don't cross. I have a great time with the Yanks. Yeah. Americans and Canadians. Yeah. Love playing them people. Did you hang out with the soldiers at all? Well, you do hang out with them. And uh, of course, some of them are interesting and some of them are interesting. <laughs> you know, going back to what you were saying about being scary, both in Afghanistan and Iraq, when we went to the hospitals, both psychiatrists were waiting for me. Because you meet and greet, and both psychiatrists were waiting for me to come around. They both took me straight in their offices, and they just wanted to know about it. It was quite weird, and you, cause, oh, I don't know, don't really want to analyse it too much. But yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It's not easy. Not easy doing those gigs. So, in amongst all these things, you were doing bits for Satanta, for Virgin TV. Basically, I did the V Festival. I interviewed uh, Danny Dyer. This is two years ago. So, Danny and Tamar Hosan come up. I interviewed them. Previously, a year before, I did this Nouveau Rouge polo doing in Essex. It was hilarious. Did John Leslie's story, which probably can't be repeated on here. No, 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 we're marked explicit. Well, okay. Well, basically, I'm on stage and I'm taking a piss out of Danny Dyer and all these other celebrities, you know, some guy from EastEnders who I didn't know. I'm not very good with that kind of thing. And when I'm doing auctions, I give everyone names, right? So there's all Essex and they've got these guys bidding for a Hulsh and Beck's book. It's up to about 5,000 quid signed. R- really ridiculous. It's all charity, right? So I'm playing and I'm going, Big Mouth Man, Big Mouth Man. He's going to go, Big Mouth Man. This guy, I'm calling Big Mouth Man. I'm going, no, Big Mouth Man is up. Big Mouth Man is up. And he's walking towards John Leslie. He's going towards John Leslie. He's going towards John Leslie. Probably to ask him all the questions that he always gets asked about probably Abby Titsmus, how big are her breasts, da 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 da. And did you rape Ulrika Johnson? Now, of course, as I said the word rape, I saw it come out of my mouth like a Batman bam whack. It just went rope. And I didn't mean it like that. I meant he keeps getting asked those questions. Well, I've seen audiences laugh at stuff that I've said. I've seen audiences not laugh at stuff I've said. Never have I seen them in a metaphoric way, hit a windscreen. I mean, honestly, they all went backwards and then they went bang and they just go all and then just silence and everybody just erupted with laughter and booze and all this. And of course, I wasn't saying, did you? I was saying he gets asked that question, of course, right? So anyway, after that, they wouldn't book me next year. Okay, of course, they got Bobby Davro. So Danny Dyer on camera thought this was really funny because he goes, yeah, I'm a sorry to the puss out, man, all this kind of shit, right? And he's doing me, going off on this whole geezer thing, trying to out-geezer each other. And um, he's going, and a year later, he gets booked, he gets sacked, and he takes over, Bobby Davro, and he walks off. And I kind of just left with the camera hanging, and Tam has sort of patted me on the back and went, cheers, see you again. So I mate, and I thought, well, I'm going to get in for that. And uh, I got in that night, turned on the telly, and he happened to come on the real football factories. And I said to the people of Virgin, I've got this idea where we do the wheel football factories, and we mock him, right, do a parody of his own parody, really. And we stuck it on YouTube, and yeah, they've gone through the roof. They've got a big cult status now, and people have done their own ones. So if you go on YouTube and spell it with an I, not with a Y, so it's D-I-R-E, as in dire, you'll see them. There are some that are a bit ropey, but the best ones are the Sunderland. Sunderland's very funny, I think. Uh, Switzerland's weird. Felton's a good one. Washer. That's a good one. Nasty ginger, you know what I'm saying? Geezer's mental. Yeah, they're kind of crazy. And now, because of the power of YouTube, of course, the BBC commissioned a pilot. We just finished filming a pilot for it, so um, he's now undercover in this sitcom, living in Laysdown, down in um, <laughs> down in the Isle of Sheppey. And it's quite funny, the people going, what are you filming, what are you filming? I wish they were doing this send-up of Danny Dyer. They go, why, we like Danny Dyer, what's wrong with Danny Dyer? They go, nothing wrong with Danny Dyer, he's fine. We just want to do a parody of him, which we have. 
It's mad. Like, I haven't got Tamar Hussan, a good-looking Turkish guy. I've got a little fat Greek guy called Tamar Salata. Danny's now named, because he's in the protection racket, he's called Danny Abubu. That's the name they've given him, and he's calling him Bingo, you know. Have you heard back from Danny? Has there been any reaction? Well, he was on a TV show, and they showed a clip of it on some football show, and I saw him, and to be fair, we laughed at it, and he uh, pretty good and wet, and that's fine. But then recently, this, this that was for one of them we'd done, but now we've done about 15 of them. 10, 15, I can't remember. But anyway, this guy, Simon, who worked with me on a film, and his friend had worked with Danny, so he ended up going to a party for that film with the girl, friend, right? And he said to Danny, I've been working with a guy you know, and he said, who is it? He said, Terry Alderton, and apparently he said, he's a cunt. So uh, so when he's off screen... I am a see you next Tuesday. <laughs> apparently calling it a Danny Dyer, but she could be completely right, I don't know. As I always say, everyone's a cunt and so am I. <laughs> so, this tour you've got coming up starts yes. October the 2nd. Have you done a UK tour like no. this before? Is this your first one, really? No, everyone keeps saying to me, you've got to go on tour, you've got to go on tour, you've got to go on tour. And the thing is, you kind of go, yeah, but you don't want it, right? Because who's going to turn up to the party? Go on tour, go on tour. So um, the final straw was a great one, really. The catalyst for it all was really Eddie Izzard. You know, oh, yes, yes, go on tour, yes, oh, yes. Stood me in the dressing room at the comedy store for about 35 minutes. Go on tour, yes, yes. So I went... Like, what was his reasoning? He said I'd be godlike. <laughs> which is hilarious <laughs> it was hilarious we were just talking he came in the dressing room he'd seen me a couple of times before and he'd seen it progress you know this whole voices thing and he, he was saying to me you know you're going to go out and talk and I was saying to him I want to do what you did and sellers and it was really nice because he was pointing from the dressing room to where the stage would be he was going I can't do what you do out there I can't do that and I was thinking Eddie Zard is saying I can't do that and you're thinking well if he's telling me to go on tour I mean he's not done too bad he obviously knows what he's doing so so there you are. Okay, so if people want to, then all of these dates, it's a big long tour, going on pretty much between now and December then, and terryalderton.co.uk or .com? Both of them. Both of them. Yeah, I'm, okay. that, I'm that clever. Yeah, Terry, right, thanks right. so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I really have uh, enjoyed talking about myself for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.